All right, everybody, this is the Progressive Care Conference call. On the second quarter 2018 financial results, there will also be a business update as well as a question and answer section. I want to thank all the shareholders for emailing me your questions. This is Stuart Smith of smallcapvoice.com. On the call with me today, we're going to have Sheetal Mars, the CEO of Progressive Care Incorporated. As you know, that ticker symbol is RXMD. Before we get started, let me go ahead and read the cautionary statement regarding forward look statements. Statements contained herein that are not based on current or historical fact are forward-looking in nature and constitute forward-looking statements within the meaning of Section 27A of the Securities Act of 1933 and Section 21E of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. Such forward-looking statements reflect the company's expectations about its future, operating results, performance, and opportunities that involve substantial risk and uncertainties. These statements include but are not limited to statements regarding the intended terms of the offering, closing of the offering, and use of any proceeds from the offering. When used herein, the words anticipate, believe, estimate, upcoming, plan, target, intend, and expect and similar expressions as they relate to Progressive Care Incorporated, its subsidiaries, or its management are intended to be or to identify such forward-looking statements. These forward-looking statements are based on information currently available to the company and are subject to a number of risks, uncertainties, and other factors that could cause the company's actual results, performance, prospect, and opportunities to differ materially from those expressed in or implied by these forward-looking statements. You can see those forward-looking or the cautionary statement for the forward-looking statements at the bottom of every press release, as well it was with this interview once it is in its archive. Now, the press release that was issued last week I'll give you, also gives you that link. You can just visit us at smallcapvoice.com, go to our clients page, click on Progressive Care, and we'll have a button up there of this audio interview. So again, as I mentioned with me on this call, today, we have the CEO of the company, Sheetal Mars. Sheetal, how are you today? I'm doing great. Well, thank you so much, Sheetal. Thank you so much for again calling in on this earnings call and business update as well as the Q&A section. The floor is now yours. So I'm going to quickly go through the financial statements. There's a lot to go through because we've experienced quite a bit of changes in the past Three months, so I want to be as detailed as possible while also getting through everything, so we can get to a lot of the pressing questions that that all of you have submitted to to Stuart. So, uh, if if anybody's looking at the balance sheet, the balance sheet is pretty straightforward. We have seven hundred thousand dollars in in cash on hand as of June thirtieth. That range is pretty much stable. We have anywhere between. Three hundred and six hundred thousand on any given day, and that includes paying for inventory and all of the normal bills that go through day to day. Accounts receivable also is pretty steady, around sixty percent of a month um, of a month's billing. We tend to do more billing towards the end of the month than we do at the beginning of the month in preparation for med sinking. We try to make sure that all of our patients get the, their medications at the same time every month, and we know that when we service long-term care institutions, they like to receive 
by the end of the month all of their medications for the, for the following month. So that's why you'll see a little bit there. Um, accounts receivable, other, that's made up of um, primarily any money we've infused into Touchpoint uh, at this time. Once we, um, once we issue our September financial report and are able to incorporate Touchpoint's financials as a consolidated subsidiary, uh, some of this will be eliminated and you'll see a, a revised, not a revised balance sheet, but a, a balance sheet reflecting the acquisition as it is finalized now. Um, prepaid expenses, some of that is still uh, contains the vesting of, of the stock and we're, we're portioning that out uh, every three months as it vests through the end of the year. Um, inventory also is, is pretty stable, about a half a million dollars, 444000 as it was of June 30th, about a half a million dollars at any given time uh, throughout the year. Acquisition deposits, so we go into other assets. We have acquisition deposit. That money is the money that we released on June 29th. As you know, July 1st fell on a Sunday. So in order to complete the acquisition, we signed all the paperwork, we filed everything with the DEA, so that our responsibility for Touchpoint began on July 1st, but we released the funds um, in, in the majority of, of what was due to Touchpoint's owners on June 29th, so that's reflected there, that 300000 is the purchase of Touchpoint. Um, we have other deposits that are, include rent and security deposits and, and some other assets that are listed here. Accounts payable we, and accrued liabilities, this includes um, accrued payroll, regular accounts payable. Obviously, we have enough current assets to meet our day-to-day -day liabilities. We've never needed financing in the last few years to make uh, to pay for our day-to-day -day operations, which is wonderful. We don't need any money to keep the lights on or to pay our employees or pay the bills. So when we talk about any kind of capital raises, this is all for growth and expansion and development of our products and services and our initiatives and not for operational growth or organic growth. Um, we have notes payable, a small amount there, capital lease obligation. One thing that happened during the second quarter was the addition of the TCGRX automated pouch packaging system. For a lot of you that don't know, that's the same pouch packaging system that um, PillPack has. That's the same product, same service. We do all that PillPack does with the machine. We customize it English, Spanish, however the patient needs it. We offer free delivery. So if you think about anything that PillPack is doing, Farmco does and then some. So it's a wonderful addition to our fleet. We still have the Script Pro. Touchpoint brings with it its own pouch packaging uh, machine and software in the Parada Pass. So we are fully stocked up on, on, the, on the variety of packaging solutions that we may need to service our patients. And we will be one of the few um, companies bringing this kind of packaging and service through local delivery to retail patients. A lot of it in this, especially in South Florida, a lot of um, long-term care facilities are just beginning to get use of, of the pouch packaging system. Where, you know, a lot of the sellers of these devices are used to pharmacies using it for long-term care facilities. So we'll be one of the first 
really bringing it to the general public down here in South Florida with the ability to provide same-day service and service on a, on a local scale. Um, unearned revenue, for anybody that doesn't understand what that is, that is a little bit of lag time between when a prescription is billed and when it is in the hands of the patient. So we, when we bill uh, a patient's prescription, let's say it happens at, at 6.30 on a Thursday and the patient doesn't receive it till um, the following day, we have this little bit where we've billed it but the patient hasn't received it, so we don't recognize that as revenue until it's received by the patient. So you'll see unearned revenue there, and that just reflects the amount of dollars waiting to be for patient. That reflects the amount of dollars the patients are waiting to receive in their medications. Uh, derivative liability is kind of um, self-explanatory. We had the Chicago Venture Partners uh, drawdown um, of about five hundred eighty-four thousand dollars was net to us. I think the total note was six hundred thirty thousand dollars. We had a derivative liability stemming from uh, a fairly large one, stemming from the volatility that occurred in the first part of the year. That has leveled off, and we were really happy about that stability, and now we've been able to reverse a lot of that liability, especially since, um, as of today, all of it is paid down. So on our next uh, set of balance sheets, we shouldn't see this derivative liability at all. Um, Deferred rent is a long-term liability as rent increases throughout the year, uh, throughout the years of its useful life. And then capital lease obligation. This is a long-term portion of the two capital leases that we have, which is, again, the TCGRX pouch packaging system and the uh, ScriptPro uh, automated vial packaging system. Going into our P&L, um, I want to talk a little bit, go into a little bit detail of our sales. Uh, we did 10.3, just under 10.3 million for the full six months. That's the highest six months we've ever had. If we go into the three months, it's about flat uh, to the same three months last year. And the big question is, why is that? As we've been reporting growth year over year consistently, why is this quarter somewhat of an anomaly? And for us, we kind of think of it as a beautiful thing. On our end, we always anticipate that insurance companies are going to continually uh, constrict reimbursement. They're going to bring it down and bring it down. That gross margin, we're one of the few industries in this country where we don't set our pricing, we don't set our margins, we're, we're subject to um, the whims, as you would say, of insurance and what they want to decide to pay for something. So when we see that there was some contraction, especially with regard to compounding, and that occurred um, in the second quarter of this year, we knew that our growth and our ability to have diversified sales, to have a lot of product lines, is what's going to uh, sustain us through this period, and then we can keep on growing. So for us to have a drop-off in the reimbursement rates on compounds, to have that kind of benefits contraction that we saw where a lot of patients are being denied access to compounds, and I'll get into more of that later, um, when we saw that kind of contraction and still be able to deliver same sales as last year, when we, last year we had significantly more um, compound revenue, was a beautiful thing for us. 
we were very excited and, and happy about it, and we believe that this was a great stress test for us, that our diversity really can, our diversity of, of products and services and our model really can withstand any kind of economic pressure that insurance companies may press upon us um, with regard to reimbursement, um, compression, and things like that. Um, our cost of sales is, is pretty much flat. The difference that you'll see there is why it's a little bit higher than it was last year is the inclusion of DIR fees into that. And, you know, every year that DIR fee gets more aggressive, the, um, the performance bonuses and metrics become harder to meet. They become a lot less generous. So we kind of put that as a cost of sale, our DIR fees, because there's no getting around its, its payment at the point of, 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 at the point of sale. If we do get, um, if we do meet the measures and do get the bonuses, you'll see that reflected in our next quarterly report. So we have um, about a 22 or 23% gross profit margin. That is pretty standard um, for a company like us that has the diversity of products that we do. Uh, we don't expect to have 50% margins. Um, so when we're doing 22, 23, that's that's really great, and we know that we're keeping our costs down. We know that we're using the cheapest products that we can while still delivering the quality of medications to our patients. Um, our bad debt is historically low. Um, Stock-based compensation is, again, um, that vesting of, of the stock that was issued in January, and, and selling other general administrative expenses has gone down. We've re, uh, reduced any compensation packages as it tied to compounds, um, as it made sense. And obviously, we try to keep a lean, tight ship. Even though we have now over 70 employees, um, it's kind of a weird thing for me to know that I have 70 employees when it used to be, you know, in the teens. I've been with this company long enough to see when it had only five. So I, I'm really proud of the growth we have, but we we have the, the right staff and a lean staff to get done what we need to get done. So you'll see the change in fair value of derivatives. That's the reverse of the Chicago Venture Partners derivative liability, uh, where we've paid down a lot of that, uh, a lot of that note, and as of today is completely paid down and reflective of that change in volatility over the six-month period. Um, to get into total income, um, net income, is about 203000 on the quarter. We're down uh, to a $437,000 loss on the six months. A lot of that has to do with the stock-based compensation and, and the gap uh, recognition of the stock-based compensation and, and the increase in the DIR fees. So we believe that uh, our operations are still doing well and that our cash flow is still doing well. Uh, we're going to get into uh, just to look at um, the equity statement. A lot of you guys have questions about about the the share structure. So we have, as of June thirtieth, it was four hundred twenty one million. Um, as of June thirtieth, per the transfer agent, was four hundred twenty seven million and change. You'll notice the dis there is a difference between what we record on our books and what the transfer agent has. That is due to when we first became a publicly traded company in about 2010. Uh, Farmco was issued 1.7-ish uh, million shares, and 
And then in 2012, we had a return of shares from a prior uh, officer, and so that is another 3.5 million shares that are beneficially owned by Progressive Care. So because Farmco is a wholly owned subsidiary of of Progressive Care and because that 3.5 million shares is under, it's mistakenly under Progressive Training, but it is still, because that used to be the name of Progressive Care before we changed it in 2010, it is still Progressive Care's ownership. And so we kind of eliminate that balance as as um, out of our issued and outstanding. And we're working with the transfer agent now to figure out how to retire and eliminate these shares so that way we can have um, a proper reconciliation going forward. We hope to resolve that before the end of the year. So going into our cash flows from operation, we had, again, a, a net loss over the six months, but we believe that you know some of this is eliminated by the share-based compensation, um, by inventory, and so we know that at the end of the day, we are building cash from the operation, and that is sustaining our organic growth. If we look at um, just prescription filled from the prior year, we're up about 21 to 23% in prescription filled. So that is a good indication of the stability of our growth. We also like to point to another metric, which, which we review internally, which is the ratio of refills to new. And that allows for, for sustained revenue and longevity. If you don't have new prescriptions and if you don't have new patients, you're going to slowly see recession in the number of sales and the number of, of reimbursements that you have on a given month. So we like to make sure that we have at, at least as many refills to new prescriptions. And, and a lot of times we have 60% new and 40% refills, and that's a great way to, to see the, the stability and longevity of our, our, of our revenues. So we have uh, a, a net increase in cash from December of $286,000. We had some of that is the drawdown from Chicago Venture Partners. And keep in mind, we did use about $400,000 of this in furtherance of that acquisition. $300,000 is the purchase price. And then we are working on developing TouchPoint, growing TouchPoint, um, working on its staffing and its model and, and its build-out. So we believe that we do have enough cash in the bank to sustain us. Um, in the short term, we are meeting our current liabilities. And so when we look at cash obligations or cash needs going forward, keep in mind that any kind of cash needs that we may say we, we need will all be for expansion purposes. So going into the notes, one of the things that I want to point out is um, is 340B. I know a lot of us have, have some questions on it. I, I don't want to get into um, a non-GAAP uh, analysis of the financial statements. I want it to be clear to everybody that the financial statements as presented are GAAP, and that's the way you should be reviewing or analyzing our financial statements. But I want to explain a little bit that 340B, we don't eliminate that we don't include it as a sale and then eliminate it, and then it becomes net revenue. So they're not included in, in as what would some would call gross revenue. These are sales that are done on behalf of uh, a charitable organization or a nonprofit health care institution. 
So um, as we finish up the call and, and we get into the questions, I know many people have questions about 340B. I'll be able to explain that further. Um, I think for now, I, oh, I want to get into um, the, the overview and the MDNA because we have a lot of accomplishments in the, in the past quarter. One of, you know, the biggest being the acquisition and, and what that means to us and, and how we've been able to uh, really execute on our growth agenda by, by securing this acquisition. The point of, of securing touch points um, was three-pronged one at $300,000. It was an incredible price for us to have thought about building a new facility in Palm Beach on our own with no licenses and no nothing um, would have cost us well over half a million dollars. And if we wanted to have the kind of equipment and staffing, we're looking at $750,000 with the inventory and the build-out and everything else. So with $300,000, we were really excited. We know that um, that provides us the ability to decrease the cost of our service radius, because for, for those of you that don't are familiar with our geographic area, we're South Florida. That includes Miami, uh, Miami, and, which is in Miami-Dade County, uh, Broward County, which includes uh, Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood, Dania Beach, Hallandale Beach, uh, Delray Beach, um, and then Palm Beach, which is, you know, West Palm Beach, Boca Raton area, and going into Martin and St. Lucie County. So that's a long drive from... from Miami. So now by having a location in, in Palm Springs, that cuts our, our drive time in half when we're reaching those, that, those St. Lucie residents. Um, we think that it's really important that we understand that the development of Touchpoint is ongoing and that we're going, it is a regulated process in changing over uh, from it being owned by certain individuals to being owned by, by Farmco, and there's a lot of paperwork and approvals that are necessary um, that, that go with that. So we all got into an update on that at, at the end of this. Um, just to talk a little bit about, about Farmco, we service nearly 3,000 patients, 13,000 patients of diverse demographics all across South Florida, and that diversity is important. Um, by talking, by working with patients of diverse backgrounds, the elderly, the poor, the professional, the LGBTQ, each, each group, each societal group, each culture has their own perspective on how healthcare should work, and by interacting with them in the way that we do, we are building a, a relationship. We're building that loyalty. They see us as people, as, as a healthcare institution that cares and understands, and we're able to reach them on an emotional, mental level to get them to understand what medication is for, how it should be used, and how they should be feeling when they take it. And that is why our adherence is so good. Uh, we maintain a five-star rating. If you look at our, if you know, hopefully we'll be able to report our performance ratings as they, as they um, become finalized, but we consistently deliver 99, 95% adherence, whereas the average patient 
that 50% of patients are non-adherent. So for our patients, for 95 to 99% of our patients to be adherent, it's not just making sure that drugs are on their doorstep or in their cupboards. It's making sure they understand what those drugs are for and how to take them and, and whether those, drug, those medications are the best for them and what, they're, what medical situation they're dealing with. So we did about 133,000 prescriptions over the same period last year in the same six months, and that's a 23% increase again. Um, so we believe that this was a phenomenal quarter for us, and we really see how resilient and how powerful our message is, how powerful our brand is, that despite what happens in insurance, despite whatever happens with the FDA, the DEA, whatever may come, our ability to plan for and execute our growth and plan for and execute the future of the way we believe healthcare should be delivered is, um, is important to us. And we think that we're making really great strides on that. So some, some 2018 key highlights, five-star rating, 5.1 million revenue in the second quarter, 10.3 million revenue for the six months, um, 133,000 prescriptions filled in uh, the six months, 23% increase over 2017. Touchpoint acquisition, completion, the ability to deliver, the ability to increase our, our service portfolio is tremendous. We raised over $1.4 million for 340B charitable organizations. By, by dispensing these medications, it's a win-win for us. It's a, a win for the charitable organization. We are supporting some foundations that are doing everything they can to reach out to the infectious disease community to stem the tide of increasing infection rates, especially in South Florida, which is a hot zone for HIV AIDS, uh, especially with, with the epidemic with opioids, increasing the chances of the spread of infectious disease as more and more people turn to illicit heroin or fentanyl or injectables and spreading the, the, these viruses. We are really happy to be supporting them in the way that we are. And just for, for peace of mind, on the same thing with, with our revenues, the dispensing fee that we receive from, from, gener from billing these prescriptions on behalf of these organizations is more than the profitability had we billed and dispensed the medication without the charitable organization. So it is, it's a win for us, it's a win for them. The installation of the TCGRX pouch packaging system, engagement of CMW Media has done wonders for our visibility. Uh, we are working with them to build out our contributed writings to be able to have our name presented in magazines and newspapers and online articles to, to work with the the uh, news media to really get our message out there about how we can transform pharmacy delivery and, and prescriptions and how we view that role in the overall ecosystem of healthcare has been, we've, we've been really pleased with how that's developed over the last three months. Um, we have our online prescription management solution, so we're developing for an independent pharmacy to have the kind of applications that, we, that we're developing and the online presence that we're developing is really unique to, to us and our brand. And so we're hoping to continue to develop that. We launched our com campaign 
to combat opioid abuse, and a lot of that stems from educating the public on on medication, on how to use it, on what opioid opioids were intended for, on alternative medications that still can provide pain relief without abusing the recommended dosage. So we really want to build out those resources. We really want to reach patients. And you'll hear more about this campaign as, as we reach out to our legislators and our local activists and the community, especially those suffering with pain, reaching out to those patients and how we can improve their lives and how we can develop solutions specifically tailored to them and how they feel pain, um, we think will really make a difference. Uh, we got uh, licensed in another state, I believe it was Minnesota, and we are still actively pursuing uh, more licenses. So with that, uh, I will turn it over to questions and, and get to answer as many as I can. Well, very good. And there's a lot of them. And I made this uh, statement last time and we did get to many of the questions in a following audio interview. So guys, there was, I think, over 50 questions set in, sent in. We did group them into a few different topics that we're going to touch on. So lots of questions about Chicago Ventures, lots of questions about updates on acquisitions. We grouped that together, but we do have a handful of questions that we're not going to be able to get to today just because of time constraints. But we will get to those questions in upcoming audio interviews with Sheetal. So as I said, Sheetal, let's just start with those uh, major areas, those major topics that had the most hits. Update on the acquisition. How is it going? What can be expected from it? Go ahead. So uh, I touched a little bit on it when I was going over the acquisition during the review of the financial statement. So touch point, here's where we are. Um, we are in the process of completing all of the change of ownership, um, all of the change of ownership uh, documents. So that means we already secured that change of ownership with the DEA, with uh, Medicare, Medicaid, um, and now and and the Board of Pharmacy with the state of Florida and all of that. Now we're going through the insurance process and updating them with all of the different, uh, with all of the new owner, ownership information. Once that's complete, and we're, in the, we're, we're just now beginning to work on changing the name and getting that going. So the touch point right now does about 80000 to about $120,000 in net revenues every, every month. We expect to, to grow that number at least 20 to 30 percent by the end of the year. I believe that I said that on, on another call, and I'm still convinced that that's, that's a reasonable expectation. One of the things that, is, that slows the process down is this change of ownership process because we cannot um, go out and market the new location as a Farmco location until we change the name. And so we wanted to have those DEA approvals, Medicare, Medicaid, um, board of Pharmacy approvals in hand before we change the name. Now that those have come through, we're in the process of changing the name, so that way we can now go to any of the doctors in the area and refer to Farmco's performance and Farmco's model and Farmco's branding because that's who they know. That's who they hear. 
And so when we go to doctor's offices and say, yes, we're Pharmco, but he, everything you're going to get and everything your patient's going to get is going to say touch point, that's a little bit confusing. So we want to make sure we unify the messaging, we unify the model, we unify the metrics, and then bring that, um, really bring that full force to the doctor's offices and to the patients. And also, we have West Palm Beach, um, Martin County, St. Lucie County, um, patients already that we're servicing from Miami-Dade. The only reason we haven't transferred those patients to Touchpoint is, again, the name change because that can be pretty confusing when you get Farmco packaging and then get um, Touchpoint packaging. So we believe once we're able to change the name, which should be soon, I'm hoping within the next 30 days, that the name change is effective and all of our all of our branding, all of our marketing materials, all of our packaging is now updated with the new name. Uh, that we can then go to the doctors that know us and go to the patients that know us and go to the patients that don't know us and continue to build upon that uh, Farmco brand. But right now, Touchpoint is doing well. We have added new new doctors to their um, portfolio that are continuing, that have started recommending uh, Touchpoint soon-to-be Farmco to their patients. Um, we are working with the long-term care facilities that they already service to begin expanding our breadth of service and, and really monetize uh, that relationship by explaining to them the adherence, explaining to them that we worked with uh, their primary care physicians. A lot of what wasn't done by the, the previous management we're now uh, able to do um, because we have that dedicated workforce and that knowledge. Um, and the last thing that we're, we're doing, and this is really important, is that we are building out the facility. So. Right now, when we bought Touchpoint, it had rudimentary inventory. It had what it had was the automated pouch packaging system, which was um, really enticing to us. But it was really kind of bare as far as workspace. I mean, many of the technicians didn't have counters. They had little cubicles with, so it wasn't a functional workspace, especially for the model that we bring, which isn't just long-term care. They're used to more of a long-term care model or a, an inpatient model. So we are building out that space so that we can then be able to bring the volume. We want to make sure that that level of service, whether it's Farmco in Miami or Farmco in Palm Beach County, is the same, and that the patients that go to either or both or however they choose to use us can expect a certain quality of service. And so once we build that out and have that efficient workflow, we think we really can, can ramp up. So that's what we're devoting some of our capital to now is doing that build out. Excellent. Well, I mentioned Chicago Venture Partners. We have questions covering every angle. So why don't you give us an exhaustive update on the Chicago Venture Partners? So as you know, and I know it's, it's fairly controversial, Amongst our shareholder base, our relationship with Chicago Venture Partners. I want to explain one thing. When we first worked with them, they were one of the few groups willing to finance a company that had nearly no financial data. We were on SEC, dropped off of SEC, went dark, did a 3A10, and then we're coming to them for money without being fully reporting with the SEC. And for that, that means a 12-month hold. And when, at that time, we were going out to the investment community. We're like, wait, we're profitable. We have great sales. We have longevity. We've been around 8, 9, 10 years. Um, 
this is a legitimate business, and they go, a lot of them kept saying, call us when you're SEC reporting. So when they reached out to us and worked with us, it was kind of not just, not the only option, but it was our best option because we were trading at one cent a share, and they were willing to work with us on leak out. They were willing to work with us on on tranches, and they and they really have been considerate of the needs we have. Was it a rich deal? Absolutely. Was it the deal that was right for us? I certainly think so. So with with the new tranche that we brought down, we needed to grow. We needed to have a um, have a facility to be able to execute on the touch point on the touch point acquisition. And when we went to alternative sources, again, we still got met with, call us when you're SEC reporting. When we went to banks, the trouble with us is we kind of were in that no man's land of being in between, where we're not fully reporting, but we're not not reporting, we're not private. And so the banks were kind of reticent, and we were shocked by that, given that the, we have a long history of revenue and a good credit rating and all of that, and the ability to... To sustain and and um, to sustain some debt, that they were saying that they wanted to wait until till 2019 to consider doing a debt facility. So when we reached out to Chicago Venture Partners, they're like, "Absolutely, we'll work with you. We'll do the leak out. You'll will be paid down, so you don't have that much interest on the note. Just the just the fu- the funding fee and." So we were really happy that at least we could get that, and and Touchpoint is going to be a major stepping stone for us going on into the into the future. So going into how that conversion happened, we took down the net to us was five hundred eighty four thousand. The total facility is about six hundred thirty thousand. That includes a fifty thousand dollar fee um, for the tranche. That's just their facility fee. So. We had to pay back to them a total of $630,000. When we pay off, when we were converting the tranches, keep in mind that when you read the documents in the agreement, market price is not market price. It has a specific definition. Market price is defined as um, a 30% discount to the average of the three lowest closing bids in the prior 20 business days. So when you look at conversions that took place under $0.05, the agreement states that it's the lesser of either market price as defined in the agreement or $0.05. Now, for a long time, we were trading at $0.8, and we were able to convert at $0.05. We did have a few tranches that did convert at under $0.05, but the one thing I want to make clear to everybody now is that we are not issuing any further shares to Chicago Venture Partners at this time. The funding facility is completely paid off as of today. The shares have been issued, and we don't expect them to hold on to those shares or maintain a position in our company or have voting want to have voting rights going forward. Um, so we are... Excited about this milestone. We're excited that come September um, we, we won't have this derivative liability on, on our books for these tranches. We've been able to 
to pay all these off. And we look forward to the next uh, the next phase of our relationship. If, if we work with Chicago Venture Partners, they've been willing to, to look at a new fund, funding facility instead of keeping us on the one that we're on. Because, again, we had a $2 million, access to $2 million. So we don't have to continue to use that particular facility. We can then negotiate with them and, and work out a new deal that is more reflective of the company we are today as opposed to the company we were trading at at one cent a share. And we want to um, extend our thanks and our gratefulness to our shareholders who have stood by us and worked with us and been patient with us and understood that um, the broader vision of, of the company and, and being able to facilitate the pay down of this debt. Well, speaking of those shareholders, they want to know and get an update on uplisting as well as SEC compliance. So dovetail those two in with this uh, next response, the uplisting and SEC compliance. So we are really excited. We began the process of of putting together our registration statement. Um, The SEC is going to require us to submit a registration statement in in order to re-register with uh, with the SEC and become compliant. And then there will be some supplementary forms that we will have to do to get current. Other than that, other than approval of a registration statement, there won't be anything else. So we do believe that if it's not this year, it is absolutely going to be by March 2019 when the 10K is due. At that point, we will have three years of audited PCAOB, audited financial statements, and in our experience and the work we've done with our attorneys and the reaching out that we've done with the SEC and, and people that know the SEC very well, we are certain that if, if they come back with comments about a third year as opposed to two years in the registration statement, we'll be able to deliver that no later than March uh, 2019. So we are well on our way. We, we've worked with our attorneys. We've submitted, them, submitted to them any due diligence. Uh, documents that they require to begin producing that registration statement. They are working fully on that. When we talk about uplisting to NASDAQ, I want to make sure that I'm not putting the cart before the horse. I want to get through SEC compliance and SEC registration and then look at uplisting. Because uplisting, as I've spoken about in previous calls, can take a couple of different forms. If we go by ourselves, we're going to work with our shareholders and how best to execute um, our share structure, whether it's, it's needing to do a merger, whether it's needing to do a big acquisition, whether it's authorizing more shares or doing a reverse split, all of that is going to be run through our shareholders. And that does not include preferred shareholders. Only common shareholders can vote on this matter. So when we go to uplisting and we, we're talking about just Farmco, just Progressive Care and its current subsidiaries doing that uplist process, we're going to work with, directly with our shareholders and their votes to come up with the best solution to make that happen. And we want to make sure that, that people understand that becoming a NASDAQ company puts us in a different here as far as being able to raise capital, being able to execute on acquisitions, being able to execute on mergers. It's, it's a whole different ballgame, 
as a as it comes to legitimacy and everything else and visibility. So it's beneficial to our shareholders, and that's why we want to do a national exchange like NASDAQ, and we think that we can work with our shareholders to provide the, rest, the best path towards that. Now, if we did it through a merger or a, a big acquisition, then we're talking about a completely different structure uh, of a company that is going to be uplisted to NASDAQ. Uh, we are always pursuing a variety of avenues um, to get those acquisitions and see whether there's either a partnership or a merger that makes sense that brings us to a different kind of market cap that provides us with different kind of uh, revenue base and, and shareholder base and all of that. So if we go that route, it's a different way of going to uplisting and going to NASDAQ. Today, I cannot provide guidance or timing on that. I don't want to put out there something that I would be uh, regretful of as uh, a regretful of sharing where I couldn't deliver. For me, execution is everything. And so I don't want to put the, uh, notions uh, out there that I can deliver something that may not be feasible. So we are working towards that. We are looking at those acquisitions. We are looking at those merger opportunities and, and all of these ways to deliver real value for our, our shareholders. But I want to make sure that I... I clearly state that I want to give you guys and give all of our investors and shareholders something that is realistic and something that we can definitely execute on. But in, no matter how far we go in that process, our shareholders will be involved 100% of the way. Well, this one's similar, but uh, you've talked about it in that response and you talked about it earlier on the update on the acquisition, but this is about different acquisitions. What are the plans for any future acquisitions? So we want to, now that we have kind of the South Florida, greater South Florida area kind of covered, which is that Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, Martin, St. Lucie County going up that East Coast, we want to get now into the I-4 corridor. And, and for, again, to go over that Florida geography, we're looking at St. Petersburg, Tampa, Ocala, uh, Orlando, Kissimmee. Daytona area, Titusville area, Palm Coast, all of those uh, cities, a lot of those, especially Tampa, St. Petersburg, Orlando, Daytona, these are densely populated areas. A lot of areas where there are, there are large retirement communities where adherence is especially necessary. And the kind of services that uh, we offer are specifically beneficial to those demographics. So we know that the next place we're going to try to go is in that, in that I-4 corridor. Then as, if we're going up the East Coast, we're going to look into Jack, greater Jacksonville area, into Georgia. And those are the common sense areas that we think that we can execute on an acquisition. We're looking for targets similar to that of touch points, similar in, in, in scope and in, in value as what Touchpoint was able to provide for us, which is that ability to have complementary services and be able to add to our suite and portfolio of services, and as well as, well as be auditable and adaptable to the FarmCo model. The FarmCo model, the FarmCo model is what we're planning to expand, and we believe that's what's going to drive our growth. 
And so we want to make sure that any acquisition target we ha- we bring on board and evaluate has those synergies. So that's where we're headed headed next. Um, it takes, and just as you saw with, with Touchpoint, it can take months to execute on an acquisition. So I don't want to put out there that we're going to fully execute on a on an acquisition within the year, but I do believe that as we work on our expansion plans, more acquisitions are are um, part of the agenda and and part of the the short term agenda. We're not talking about five years, ten years down the road. We're talking about the next six to eighteen months of of bringing more pharmacies on board and bringing uh, consolidating more healthcare companies into the progressive care brand and model. All right, we talked a lot about 340B earlier, but can you explain how 340B works? So, I know that it can be kind of confusing, especially because we separate it and we talk about millions of dollars, and and it's it's kind of confusing. So, the way I describe it is like raising money, and it and I don't like to describe it as sales, but. It's not raising money as if we're calling and getting donations. 340B works in, and I'm going to try to explain this as simply as, po- as possible, almost like the way consignment works. So the inventory is owned by the charitable organization, and that inventory is given to us to dispense to their patients. So when we go through and we receive a prescription, by the 340B entity or their patient, we will use their inventory to fill that prescription and dispense it to the patient. Now, for this service, for the service of facilitating that delivery of the prescription to the patient, we receive a fee. And that fee is what is our sale. So when we talk about millions of dollars, that's the billing. So we bill the prescription to insurance. That insurance company will reimburse us um, whatever their contracted reimbursement rate is, and I'll give you an example. So if we have um, a medication like a Tripla or Genvoya, these are common HIV medications that the insurance company traditionally pays a pharmacy, let's say, $3,000 for, that $3,000 it belongs to the 340B entity. And that $3,000 less our dispensing fee, whatever fee we've negotiated and disclosed, by the way, to, to the federal government as this is a federal program, um, that fee, so that, that reimbursement less that fee is what we remit to the 340B entity so that they can use that money to buy uh, medications at a discounted rate for those high-risk patients, those vulnerable patients and, uh, that they service. Now, the net value to them is that reimbursement minus their inventory costs is what they can use now to facilitate their mission, which is either bringing HIV-AIDS awareness, bringing free health care services, bringing educational ser- seminars, delivering other medications to the patient, um, all of those things that facilitate their mission, improve health care in these high-risk communities is what they'll use that money for. But just... So we're, we all understand um, this money is, is on behalf of the 340B entity. So while two, over 
$7 million did flow through the pharmacy in the first, three, first six months of the year, those, those monies, less our dispensing fee, which is a, a hundred and something thousand, I'm not looking at the financial statement right now because my screen froze, um, that, that dispensing fee is what we keep. The, the rest of it goes to the charitable organization to facilitate their mission. I know that there was one question about how we service these organizations, especially with some of them that are, are, that are based in, in Orlando or Tampa or further out. A lot of them, while they may be based in those areas, do have providers in the South Florida area. So these patients are South Florida residents. We're going to be servicing those patients. The important part of doing the acquisition and growing and getting into Orlando and getting into that I-4 corridor is so we can then expand our radius of our 340B services as well. And as I said before, when I went over the financial statements, it is a win-win for us. We, the reimbursements that we would get, many of these HIV medications, if we bought them under our own contract, would be reimbursed at even or at below cost. So by working with charitable organizations, they're able to buy those medications at a discounted rate because they are servicing these high-risk, uh, vulnerable populations and able to, to improve the health care in these communities. We are now able at least to realize some profitability on, on that service. It's not exorbitant, but it, it is better and beneficial to us and we have been growing it, especially with, with the ones that we've serviced now. We have two more contracts that are set to be effective October 1st. The contracts we're serving now, they're seeing a difference in their adherence. They're seeing a difference in their patients. And with, with infectious disease, you cannot miss a dose. You cannot be non, non-adherent because then you're putting yourself and your community at risk of having an increased viral load in, in your body. So by maintaining that adherence is really phenomenal for them, and that's why they consistently try to recommend um, their patients to use PharmCo, not only for, for their benefits, because sometimes, you know, certain drugs don't come under the 340B program, but because it's better for their patients. And diabetes medications, certain antibiotics and things like that, they don't fall under the 340B program. It doesn't help them revenue-wise. But they tell their patients, go to PharmCo, get, get everything you need from one place because we're going to make sure that you get your medications on time and you don't miss doses. And so they're consolidating as much as they can to have their patients. And their patients are pleased. The patients are happy to have a pharmacy that understands, a pharmacy that provides discrete packaging, a pharmacy that has delivery so that they don't have to go to a pharmacist and, and you know, worry about whether they're their status can be compromised or exposed or, or worry about the stigma associated with their diagnosis. They just get a delivery, and, and they're able to maintain that privacy as they see fit. Well, let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about the CBD products. Here's the question. What are the plans for incorporation of CBD products into the business model? So right now, we've been working with some CBD manufacturers. We do hold a line of CBD products on our shelves, and we are working with um, our community organizations. We're working with 340B organizations, our healthcare practitioners, to raise awareness about what CBD is because there's a lot of misconceptions. 
you'll see a lot more writing from me uh, about CBD and what it is and what the difference is uh, as, it, as it compares to marijuana. Um, for many of us that don't know, CBD is derived from hemp. And the difference between CBD and marijuana is marijuana can be 30% THC, which is that psychoactive compound that produces that high-like effect, um, whereas hemp or um, cannabis, uh, CBD derived from hemp or, hemp or cannabis is um, only 0.3% THC. So there is no possible way for CBD to produce a high-like effect. However, CBD does have... Uh, therapeutic properties. It does reduce inflammation. It does calm nerve endings. And so it is, we have seen that it's beneficial for our patients and we are marketing as such. The, the rub is for us is that CBD has kind of a murky legal status. And, and that is because not all CBD is derived from hemp. Some of it is derived straight from marijuana. And so some states some localities, municipalities, they all treat CBD differently. Some say it's illegal. Some say it's legal. You can look it up a dozen times and, and find different answers. Is CBD legal right now? And say some say yes and some say no. Now there is a bill in Congress. The Senate just approved a bill to legalize CBD where you can grow it and you can any CBD where it doesn't have... A, the psychoactive compound, um, uh, the, the psychoactive compound, and won't produce a high-like effect uh, is approved. Now we're waiting for the House and we're waiting for the president to sign such a bill. We believe that that's the best case scenario. Um, hemp CBD is still a C1 under under federal law, which is a controlled substance that has no medical use. We don't agree with that classification. We are working communicate with our legislators and any, anybody we can reach out to to raise awareness on this where that classification has to change. Everybody kind of is understanding now it's an increasingly accepted notion that marijuana and CBD has medical benefits. And so we want to um, make sure that we, we continue to lobby for that. The new law that, that the Senate just passed doesn't change um, the, the classification. So what we're waiting for is, is for there to be some clarity on the law. However, we do know in the state of Florida that we can have certain CBD products that we've attested to that we've found that have no THC, that there is a, a proper chain of the plant going into that CBD product, so we're able to maintain a small line. Our plans are to either acquire a manufacturer or, or, or partner with a manufacturer to develop our own line, especially as it relates to um, nervous system disorders uh, and, and neural disorders and, and pain management, especially for pain management, which we're seeing very promising studies showing that it's, it's effectiveness in pain management. So we want to make sure that we, we really promote the healthcare aspect of, of CBD and integrate that under the PharmCo banner as opposed to having a completely separate company. While we're under DEA you know, jurisdiction, we have to be very careful of how we approach um, these substances. While we agree and we recommend and, and will attest to 
um, the medicinal benefits of, of either marijuana or CBD. Um, if we go outside of the law, it puts everyone at risk, and I'm not willing to put people at risk. Um, so we just make those recommendations to the patients, and if we can dispense CBD to our patients, we, we will do so. Excellent. Well, then, can you go over the current initiatives that are underway now? So we have a lot of exciting things. We have a lot of you read our press release about Discharge Rx. Now, that is a program we designed specifically for hospitals because, again, we notice gaps in in healthcare. We notice that a lot of patients are going to the hospital and not filling their prescriptions, which is putting them at risk of being readmitted to the, to the hospital within 30 to 90 days. Now, for hospitals, they get penalized for that. After 30 to 90 days, if a patient is readmitted, readmitted for the same diagnosis, the, the um, hospital has to pay a fine. So they're responsible for the care, the transitional care and management of medication for the patient even after they're discharged. And how do they do that? With limited resources, limited time, the doctor is doing rounds. Very few people have the ability to uh, communicate with the patient and describe, go over their medications. Patients are saying it costs too much. Patients don't understand what each medication is for or how to take them or how to stay adherent. That's where we came in, and that's where, you know, we're doing that pilot program with Westchester General Hospital, and we're working with these new patients. We, the one thing that's unique about Florida is there's nothing, and it may not be unique about Florida, but one thing that we know being a pharmacy in Florida is that you cannot force a patient to use a particular pharmacy. The hospital cannot say, we're dis- you know, Fonco is dispensing all of our discharge meds. They can only make a recommendation, and it's up to the patient to decide whether to come to Farmco or not. Now, we are putting our representatives, our marketing material, um, going there, educating the nursing staff, the doctor staff, to really explain the Farmco model and why it's beneficial to the patient, but ultimately we cannot force them to change. The great thing is that they have been really receptive, and they believe that they can work with the patients and get them to at least... Um, start using Farmco for their transitional care as an additional service provided by the hospital. So after transitional care, it's like putting Farmco on a trial period. After the transitional care, 30 to 90 day supply of medication, if they find that Farmco is delivering the kind of service that they want, and this we're talking about from, from the patient perspective, they can continue to use Farmco for supplementary refills, and we can continue to work with their primary care physician as they use, as they go through ongoing um, condition management and supervision. So we are excited. We do have other hospitals that are interested. And as soon as um, we rolled this out with Westchester, they we have a doctors group that works a lot of other facilities. They reached out to us. Long-term care facilities are also. Um, looking at us, and we're working on trying to do in-service with these other institutions to go over our program and how we help. And then the, the other thing is um, telepharmacy. And we've gone over this a little bit. I know it's kind of confusing. Telepharmacy is live streaming digital pharmacy window. What does that mean? If I was in the hospital, and I'm going to give you an imaginary scenario, but we want to make this a reality. Imagine I'm being discharged, and I have a med list. 
one of the things that's important for all doctors to do is a medication reconciliation. That means working with the patient saying, what are you currently on? What medications conflict with the medications that go with the diagnosis I've now given you? Streamline this medication regimen so that it's beneficial to you, and then send this to the pharmacy to get it filled. So that's a lot of consultation. That's a lot of time the doctor or the nursing staff or the administrative staff has to spend with the patient to go over medication. Now, for us, what we would like to do is for at discharge, the, the nursing staff would simply put a kiosk, a digital, it looks like a big iPad screen, uh, on, a, on a platform. They bring it into the patient's room, and in it they can communicate face-to-face with the pharmacy staff that will do, while they're running around and doing all their discharge billing and, and their paperwork, we can go over the medication re- reconciliation, we can go over the medication list, we can go over how to take it, we can go over adherence, we can go over delivery and insurance and copay, all right there. Before the patient gets a list or goes to the, goes to the pharmacy and gets surprised by copays or anything else, we can make recommendations on, on cheaper alternatives to the doctor right there as, as we communicate with the patient and the nursing staff face-to-face. And face-to-face is important, especially if you're, you're prescribing something that is a topical or a suspension or, you know, where there's multi-meds. You want to be able to explain that visually. So we think that telepharmacy is going to really integrate well with, with the Discharge Rx program. We also think it's going to work really well for doctor's offices. Um, and large-scale clinics that after you go and see your, your doctor and get a diagnosis and a list of medications, you can go right to the pharmacy window without leaving, without having to step foot in the pharmacy, go over everything having to do with your medications and know that it's going to be delivered to your door uh, by, you know, that day and you don't have to worry about it. And now you understand everything that you need to understand to stay compliant, to stay adherent, and to get well. And so that's what we really envision for, for telepharmacy. And we're developing that code, we're developing the, that app, we're rolling it out in the kiosk platform, we're working with our, our some technological uh, hardware providers who are really excited about this opportunity because nobody has approached them about this kind of um, program where we're going to have that visual audio interface um, and this HIPAA-compliant secure interface. So we're, we're really excited about the rollout. We really think it's going to be beneficial, and we're really looking forward to doing our technological advancement. Well, very good. Let's talk about, can you talk about Benchmark and how they factor into the company's growth agenda? So we were approached by Benchmark about doing a capital raise, and we, we worked with them, and we... Uh, agreed to a $10 million capital raise. And now we're working around the, the structure of that, how it would take place, um, what kind of materials and due diligence. We're, we're in that process. The purpose of, of working with Benchmark and, and the amount of money that we think is necessary is all for growth and expansion. We want to be a NASDAQ company that makes sense. We want to be a company that's really changing the face of pharmacy, changing the face of healthcare. And while we are growing and we are having organic growth and we are increasing our prescription count, to really make a difference on this growth, to really accelerate this growth, we need real capital. And so we believe that Benchmark 
is going to be able to provide this and provide it with, with investors that are, are friendly, that understand our market, understand our shareholder base, that aren't looking to, um, that aren't toxic in any way. We want to make sure that we're working with a company that really gets the benefit of PharmCo, of progressive care, and the, and the healthcare vision that we present. We, we chose Benchmark for a couple of different reasons. One is their integrity and visibility. So we know that they have a large following. We know that they have institutional analyst coverage. So we know that once we do our capital raise, that they will be able to provide that coverage and be able to provide um, that visibility for the stock afterwards. And we and to that point, you know, a lot of us and are familiar with their work on CNBC. They are um, they do have an analyst that does speak on that network from time to time, and and they do they are referred to significantly in the the, the Wall Street capital markets industry. So we wanted to really use a reputable company, and hopefully they're going to be able to deliver the kind of capital raise where our shareholders are really going to see the benefits of the accelerated growth that we can do with that expansion capital. Well, Sheetal, we've been at it for over an hour, so I want to thank you for your endurance and ask you if you have any closing comments or thoughts for your shareholders before we end the call. So I always end this with, with some, some reflection or, or talking about what's going on. I'm going to try to keep this really brief because I know I've been talking for an hour, but I want everybody to get excited. This is new. This is fresh. You know, nobody talks about pharmacy the way we do. Nobody approaches tech companies with the ideas that we have. And we are on the precipice of really developing technologically, but also in a way that's personal. A lot of times, you know, we all get frustrated with calling in, uh, calling in a company, getting an automated reply, going through the prompts, you know, working with computers all the time. But healthcare is personal. Healthcare is emotional. Healthcare is impacted by our upbringing and our worldview. And for healthcare to be effective, you have to have providers that understand that. And we want to use tech that brings us to the forefront of personalization, of brings it to the to the home, because that's really where healthcare is being delivered. So we're doing discharge RX, we're doing telepharmacy, we're doing the, the opioid campaign. You're going to see more writing from me. You're going to see more speaking from me. You're going to see more challenge from me of the industry and say, hear us say that this is our perspective. This is how we believe healthcare should be, and we're going to make it so. Now, I'm a loud person. I have, I've, I have very little volume control, but I'm still only one voice. I need a, a lot of loud people to form a chorus with us. To, to say, yes, this is the right approach, yes, this is what we believe in, and yes, this is where we believe pharmacy should go. One thing I, you know, I'll shout from the rooftops if I have to is that pharmacists, many of them are doctors in pharmacology. You don't see them put doctor in front of their name, but they are. They're Dr. Pamela Roberts. They're Dr. Desiree Baker, and those are our pharmacists in charge of, of Touchpoint and, and Pharmco. And they are specialists in pharmacology. They know these drugs backwards, forwards, inside out, the interactions. They know over-the-counter products. So we want 
patients to start looking at their pharmacist as a valuable healthcare resource and, and to look to the, even if it's their local pharmacist, if it's us, and we hope to be that resource, to just call us and ask us about over-the-counter medication, ask us about pain treatment, ask us about hormones, because our pharmacists can tell you. Our pharmacists are knowledgeable. Our pharmacists are healthcare professionals with decades of, of pharmacy experience, of healthcare experience under their belt. And so I want every one of our investors, every one of our shareholders, everyone listening who's just looking at healthcare to get excited because we're going to start making a change. We're going to start making a difference in this industry. And you're, you're just now seeing the beginning of it. I'm going to do one quick plug at the end of this, and I never do a plug, but we are up for a South by Southwest speaking opportunity where I can bring this message to a broader scale. So if everybody can, can go to the Facebook page and find that link or go to our Twitter and find that link and, and register an account and vote for, vote for me to go and, and make this presentation at that conference, I would really appreciate it. I think it would be a, a great thing for the company and for the visibility of our message and the legitimacy of what we're trying to do to present at that conference. So just a quick plug, and I know that I don't usually do that, but I think it's important in this case, especially for the company. So I want to extend a, a big thank you to everybody for listening to me for so long here at 70 five minutes going on. Thank you for listening to everything I've had to say, and I hope you found it valuable. Absolutely. And once again, I'm going to give a plug, uh, and I hope you win the South by Southwest. Uh, Austin, Texas is where smallcapvoice.com is located. But uh, I, I want to give a plug as well. I want you guys to come and listen to these audio interviews. We are going to get so many of these questions that we weren't able to get in today because we knew. We knew today was going to be a long one anyway, so we just weren't able to get as many questions in. But do stay tuned. Check out the audio interviews as we issue them via press releases. For Sheetal Mars, CEO of Progressive Care, ticker symbol RXMD. This is Stuart Smith saying thanks so much for listening.